So, Tim, are you a karaoke fan? Uh, yeah, of course I am. you have any go-to songs? For a while, it was You May Be Right by Billy Joel. Because it's a very, like, down the middle. You can That's do the vocal. Bad. There's no acrobatics. And it's a good little story song. Gets people pumped up. It's pretty short. So I used to be a big karaoke guy when I lived in Chicago. This bar, Trader Todd's, which I think is partially owned by the guy uh, who played Ogre in the Revenge of the Nerds movies. Uh, but we used to go late night there. And one of my favorite karaoke moments involves a song that came out in 1982. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not on our list. But mm. uh, I had a friend who was a big time karaoke guy. He used to pull off like the Humpty Dance was one of his like, you know, crowning accomplishments. But uh, one night, you know, I think it was maybe even after a Cubs game, beverages had been consumed. We decided to do a duet to Alabama's uh, Mountain Music, the title track from their uh, 1982 album. And uh, at least in my head, we like pulled off the harmonies perfectly. We were singing it. We're doing well. And then during a little bit of break, he looks at me and he says, Jones, we're going shirtless for the fiddle solo, right? (laughs) And I just panic. And of course, it gets to the fiddle solo. He rips his shirt off, fires it into the bar. I don't go with him. But still, he closes it out. Just an absolute like, you know, mic drop moment. And there you go. My favorite karaoke moment of all time. So Fitz, if you're listening, I still remember I should have gone shirtless for the fiddle solo. As someone who sang I Want It That Way with my future brother-in-law at my other uh, sister-in-law and brother-in-law's wedding, uh, pre-wedding show fun stuff, I totally appreciate that story. So very cool. All right. 82 is here. We're not going to have Alabama on this episode, but maybe one of us will go shirtless. Let's find out right now when Hall of Songs begins. Welcome, music lovers and loyal listeners, to a topless edition of Hall of Songs, the podcast in which two men attempt to determine the greatest songs of all time. I'm Tim Malcolm. I'm Chris Jones. How are things today, Chris? It is May. We have uh, Justin Timberlake has ushered in the month with the meme. What's going on? (laughs) I always forget about that until it happens, and then I'm just so delighted. Uh, You know, it's good. Uh, Things are... Things are coming along. Uh, anyone who follows us on Twitter might see that I'm moving. You know, I moved your book to a very uh, precious location on my built-in bookshelves in the new house. So uh, things are going well. All I have to say is thank you for that. I have nothing else to say. Uh, yeah. And speaking of the book, hey, if you want to buy my book, I have two of them, actually. One is Baseball Road Trips. The other is Drive and Hike Appalachian Trail. Both are available on Amazon and anywhere you get books. If you're looking to hike the Appalachian Trail or go to a baseball game this summer, please buy my book. All right, that's it for the plug. So Hall of Songs is a podcast in which we try to figure out the greatest songs of all time. We do so by creating a Hall of Fame for songs. Every episode is a chance to populate that Hall of Fame. We nominate up to 12 songs per episode. We do that by looking at a year and taking our picks for the 12 best songs in that year. 
So we've been doing that since the beginning of this podcast. We started in 1951. We're now in 1982. Big stuff. Fun year. I love this period of time. And at the end of this episode, when you're done listening, you could go to hallofsongs.com. That's where you vote for the songs that are going to be in the Hall of Songs. Basically, what you do is you pick what you think are the greatest of the of the ones that are on that ballot. So it's songs that we just talked about in our latest episode, plus songs from previous episodes that are still on the ballot. Just go to the ballot and pick the up to 10 of the songs that you think are the absolute best of that group. And when we finish with that voting, we will then tabulate the votes and then we will tell you which songs got into the Hall of Songs. And speaking of which, in our last Recap episode, we let you know that the latest two members to the Hall of Songs are Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie and I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. Yes, I feel very good about that, saying that finally. So the new songs, Under Pressure by David Bowie and Queen and I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. So congratulations, But go to hallofsongs.com now up until May 15th. That is your period of time where you can vote for the songs that you think are the best of the best. And then we will come back with a recap show on May 20th that will explain if any songs got into the hall and if so, which ones did. And then on May 22nd will be our next main episode on 1983. We also have a Veterans Committee episode coming up too. That'll be in between 82 and 83. Chris, why don't you tell people about the Veterans Committee so that they know about that. Yeah, that's a fun thing we do. Every After every four episodes, we uh, nominate a couple songs that we think we missed that maybe listeners pointed out and said, yeah, that should have been in the, the 12 for that year or that year. Uh, we also talk about a couple things that we really like, maybe things that aren't quite Hall of Songs nominee worthy, uh, but things that uh, you know we really enjoyed from that period and just sort of, uh, it's a good way of summing up like every four years and uh, getting talking about some things that are just a little bit different here and there. And you know, I tend to talk about live songs because I love live music, but it doesn't necessarily translate itself to the, the main episodes. But it's fun to just sort of get caught up on where things stand and where music is at that time. And I tend to talk about 25 minute long prog songs and or songs from the dance genre or whatever genre that people have never heard of. I don't know. I don't know. what Yeah, the hell yeah I do. you claim to not like fish, despite the fact that fish is nothing more than like dance music and 25 minute long prog songs. So. I don't know. You're those, a man are of many va- those are very, very tenuous definitions of what fish <laughs> does. That's what that is. So it's 1982 time, Chris, 1982. You were alive during this time. Before we get into the year itself, do you have any memories of 82 or songs from 82? Yeah, we'll talk about a couple here. Uh, I think that the first tape I ever remember buying myself uh, was actually included one of our nominees. Uh, And I remember a lot of these songs sort of popping up either on radio or video. Uh, So this is the first episode we're doing where I do remember these songs, you know, when they were actually coming out contemporaneously. Do you remember when you got your first cassette tape? Not exactly, but it would have been, it almost certainly was in 1982. Uh, I, you know, I, I know I would have almost certainly been at Hills department store in Morgantown, West Virginia. One of those giant uh, places that had everything. The tapes were up near the front. They came in those, you know, plastic things. So you couldn't steal them. Uh, then sometime probably, I'm guessing it was 83, my sister and I did the, you know, the Columbia house thing where we each picked five saw five tapes and, uh, sent away. So, you know, 10 tapes miraculously appeared on our doorstep and a couple weeks later. 
Yeah, so I guess I was just a smidge too young for the Columbia House thing, but I definitely took the tape, put it in the radio, and tried to record songs from the radio, my favorite songs that were out at the moment, and put together a mixtape and that kind of thing, just for a few years. But then, then, you noted, Chris, that in August of 81, your life changed forever with the launch of MTV. Well, my life changed forever a year later, when I wasn't even born. August 17th, 1982, a German manufacturing house produced copies of ABBA's 81 album, The Visitors, on compact disc. Yes, the compact disc was born 40 years ago. Now, there was a test pressing of Richard Strauss's Ein Alpen Symphony on CD before that, and the first album to actually hit stores as a CD was Billy Joel's 1978 release, 52nd Street. But August 17, 1982 was recognized as the day the CD was first produced. Just a few months before that, Commodore International unveils its new 8-bit home computer, the Commodore 64. Weeks after that, a 15-year-old named Rich Skrenkta writes the first computer virus to infect Apple II computers via floppy disk. 15-year-old kid, how about that? In elementary school, I put floppy disks in Apple computers. I ran DOS, I ran Turtle, but three years later, I was putting compact disks of Myst in SimCity 2000 into my home computer. Three years after that, I was putting a compact disk of America Online into my home computer and chatting with people across the world. Three years after that, I was putting an enhanced compact disc version of the Backstreet Boys Millennium into my computer to get multimedia extras like videos and photos of the Backstreet Boys. And three years after that, I was making a mix CD on my new personal computer for a girl who, sorry Tim, is not going to kiss you. The CD and the computer changed my life. They gave me outlets for self-expression and entertainment in ways no other objects could as a child of the 80s, I feel privileged to have grown up during a time when these things were growing along with me. I got to be creative through these media, just as these media evolved through users like myself. By and large, the songs in our 1982 list show the rapid evolution of musical creation through computers and digital technology. We'll hear new genres and new concepts that would come to define genres years down the road. We'll hear more since than ever. Computers and digital technology are taking over. Something tells me they won't give up their stranglehold on us. So, Chris, would you say, would you agree that this is a very synth-heavy, electronic-heavy list that we have coming up? Oh, it is. It's fun. Uh, it's fun to start to get into this world, how much it's changed and all the cool sounds. And, uh, you know, there's sort of an interesting, to me, like, world of using that electronic sound in so many different ways. I mean, like what you said, we're going to get into so many different genres here, but they all do kind of have that running through them. It's like this use of technology to push music forward, whether it be in things like country music, whether it be in metal or whether it be some things that are kind of like straightforward pop or uh, hip hop R and B. It's uh, uh, a really cool, cool selection. And I'm excited to talk about these. A full menagerie of great songs Coming at you right now, it's time to unveil our 12 top songs from 1982. These will be the nominees for the Hall of Songs from this year. We're off! Looking from a window above, it's like a story of love. Can you hear? 
Our first nominee is Yazoo, at least that's how they were known in the UK, with Only You from March of 1982. They were known as the Yaz in America. This is a song that I kind of at the last minute slid into the conversation and said, you know what? This has to be in there. You didn't really fight me on it, which I really appreciate it. So maybe you think of this uh, as highly as I do, possibly. Yeah, I think this is just a really cool song. I mean, this is sort of one of those... uh, it's it's one that's both of the moment. It's a very 1982 song, but it is timeless as well. It, it does, to me, really hold up well. I love listening to this one today. So Yazoo, Vince Clark, a keyboard player, and Alison Moyet, a vocalist, were both from Basildon, Essex, England, and wanted to be musicians from an early age. Influenced by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, a band that I talked about a couple episodes ago, fantastic underrated group. Clark, with Andy Fletcher, Martin Gore, and Dave Gahan, formed the band Depeche Mode. Clark wrote nearly all the material for their first album, Speak and Spell, including the breakout hit single, Just Can't Get Enough. Buck Clark, tired of the instant fame, and left the band in late 81. Moyet, meanwhile, tried to find jobs in blues bands since her guttural vocal style resembled that of a more refined Janis Joplin. She put an advertisement in the magazine Melody Maker, and Clark responded, He responded because he had written a new song and wanted to prove to the band's label, Mute Records, that he didn't need Depeche Mode to make money, and he wanted a woman to demo the lead vocal for it. The song was this one, Only You. The pair did the demo, sent it to Mute Records, only took a shining to it after some publishers liked it. Mute asked Yazoo to do the B-side, so they quickly recorded the song Situation and released the single Only You and Situation in March. Only You would hit number two in the UK, and Situation would be a U.S. club hit, leading to the group changing its name to the Yaz for the American market, since there was already a record label named Yazoo that threatened to sue them. Yazoo in Britain got big fast, and an album called Upstairs at Eric's came out quickly after in August 82. That album is awesome. This is a great band. This is a great song. It's a torch song. It's an end of relationship song, and I think it is one of the most beautiful love songs, torch songs ever written. Oh, it really is. It's a great song. And I will note before we get more into the song, it has some of the oddest cover art of all time. I mean, Upstairs <laughs> yeah. at Eric is is just a normal, you know, sort of 80s album cover. But the single album cover is like this black and white drawing of an American football player. <laughs> and it's like, I can't figure out what's going on. And I kind of don't want to dig into it anymore because just leaving it at that is enough. Well, did you notice the cover of Upstairs at Eric's? Look at it closer. The two people sitting at the table are separated from the bottoms of their bodies. Did you notice that? I didn't that? notice that. I'll have to go back and look at that. Look at that closer. It, 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 they're, they're so out there. And half of the album tracks on Upstairs at Eric's are absolute experiments in digital recording and soundscapes and things like that. There's one track called I Before E Except After C, which is just a weird vocal experiment that's really fun. But Alison Moyet is a unbelievable vocalist she's sort of like annie lennox before annie lennox comes on board and becomes a mainstream star she's got that same sort of soulful kind of growl behind her but she's also got a really big voice that can stand up and can sing a regular melody just fantastic i i think this is 
the way she applies it in this song is a pretty straightforward vocal, but it's so affecting because mostly the music here is really affecting. I think the combination of the synths, the very warm synths, and Moye's very wonderfully emotional vocal give it this kind of warmth that you don't get from synth pop songs otherwise. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the the music here, the synth part is really understated and it lets her voice do a lot of the work. And uh, like it's, I, like you said, I mean, it is this great sort of torch song. I just think what it, what I love about this and is the way that really through vocals is that, you know, she's sort of able to convince you that it's like, you know, she knows the relationship's over, but maybe, just maybe there's this like tiny thread of hope. And that sort of comes through with this like, like just perfectly pained note in the vocals that I just absolutely love. And back to the synths and how they're so warm, you know, they kind of take a place of a string section here. I could easily hear this song against a rhythm guitar in more of a country background, against a piano in more of an old school pop background. This song has good bones, as you would talk about many times on the podcast. And it just so happens that it comes out in 82 and one of the guys who formed Depeche Mode is the guy who's in charge of the music here. So it's got this very keyboardy synth heavy arrangement, but it's like you said, understated the fact where you had that little string ish kind of synth section, but it's so light in the mix and it just allows for that color to come through. And then you had these little sort of bleeps and bloops throughout the kind of pepper the sound a little bit and just add that emotional warmth that kind of hugs you a little bit. And the first time I ever heard this song, because it's I'm, I'm a millennial and this is where I come to, and we talked about this movie a couple episodes ago, is in Can't Hardly Wait. It's shown in that big scene at the end where Ethan uh, Embry's character finally gets Gen- Jennifer Loves Hewitt's character. And this song's in the background and it's got that really wonderful sort of something great's going to happen here. Even though this song is not about something great happening, uh, it still gives you that like warm, good feeling that can even make you tear up if the time's right. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the use and I can't hardly wait. I'll come back to this later in this episode with a different song, but uh, I I'm fascinated just again, as somebody who was uh, listening to music at this era, although not old enough to really get what was going on, but just sort of the way there's been this sort of revisionist history of uh, to me of 80 songs where I think, uh, the ones that are now used in music are not necessarily the ones that were climbing up the charts. And that's probably the same. I think even going back, I remember your intro in one of the uh, early 1970s or early mid or 1970s episodes was about how there was this disconnect between the best songs and then the ones that were topping the charts. And uh, I'm interested, I guess, in the way that that plays itself out through the 80s. Well, here's our first car crash transition of the episode.
Yeah, this is Iron Maiden. That's right, from the Number of the Beast album from March of 1982. This is, of course, Hallowed Be Thy Name. Because at five o'clock, they take me to the gallows pole. This album's really the only Iron Maiden album I got into, uh, and it's been a really long time since I listened to it. I used to have this on CD, uh, but going back and listening to this, I was thrilled at how fresh it still sounds and how great this song is. It really does sound amazing. This band was ahead of its time, but also they can hold up at any time. You know, this sound is very rooted in the '70s, but it could probably hold up in the seventies and it holds up even today. It's just such a fantastic sound. So Iron Maiden, the brainchild of East London, Steve Harris, a bassist and songwriter who legend has a pick the name on Christmas day, 75 after seeing an adaptation of Dumas, the man of the iron mask over the next four years, several lineup changes preceded the band's first record deal with EMI in 79 that led to 80s self-titled debut, which hit number four in the UK they found some success in the U.S. following the live album and movie Live at the Rainbow with two videos, Iron Maiden and Wrathchild, released and put into heavy rotation on MTV. But Iron Maiden found its success thanks to cocaine. In 1981, then-lead singer Paul Diano was using quite a bit too much. Presumably the rest of the band was using exactly the right amount. And he was kicked out. Replacing him was Bruce Dickinson of the band Samson. Samson! He auditioned, was hired on the spot, and was the front man during the Fall 81 tour. His first album as lead singer was this one, 82's Number of the Beast, which would hit number one in the UK, and for a metal album, a very impressive 33 on the Billboard chart in the US. In the wake of this album, they embarked on a historic worldwide tour, becoming one of the first bands to incorporate a fully choreographed light show. Of course, the success came with notoriety. Several Christian groups protested the shows, claiming that the name and the artwork meant that the band was satanic. That in turn led to more fame and more success. Woohoo! But the title track and Hallowed Be Thy Name continue to be recognized as among the most significant tracks in metal history. I think if you ask any Iron Maiden fan, this is probably their number one track of all time. And if you ask any metal fan, this is one of the three or four greatest metal tracks ever. This has got to be a no-brainer for our nominee list. Yeah, I mean, I was exposed to Iron Maiden again through MTV and through the videos that were like just nothing but... Uh, live recordings from the concert so they weren't anything that were you know overly produced videos and every time you watch those it felt like it was something kind of like sinister like you were sneaking around and that's because you'd like you'd watch the videos and then they cut and then the guys in the studio were talking about the you know all these groups protesting the concerts and the fact that they were actually satanists and all this stuff and that like juxtaposition was great it was like it was the it was like promos because you felt like you were sort of sneaking around and getting something illicit when in fact they were just pretty much like straightforward rock songs but uh uh it was great and it was definitely something that as a kid was kind of like ooh, i probably shouldn't be watching this but i like it so harris wrote this song about a prisoner waiting to be hanged talks about going to the gallows pole and apparently he took some of the lyrics from the band beckett's life shadow that's from the mid-70s 
he admits that they were placeholder lyrics when he put everything together, but still kind of cribbed them. Still, this has all the feeling of you're going into hell and you ain't getting out of it. This closes the album. It does so with this very epic sort of lead up. The beginning has this really nice build and then you get right into that guitar attack, which is just tremendous, that double guitar attack. This really does set up thrash. It sets up the iconic, hard, fast sound that's going to define 80s metal. And it does so while you feel like you literally are with this man going to his death. It's uh, a harrowing sound. And the vocal, by the way, by Dickinson, my God, operatic. He's got that tremendous range and he really does live up to the guitar attack. He, he stands up against it. And that's, I think, one of the great hallmarks of this band. Yeah, I mean, uh, the vocals really to be incredible. There's a couple parts where it's not quite acapella. There's a little bit of backing, but it's really just his voice standing alone. And uh, I mean, it gives it this sort of chilling, chilling aspect to it. And you mentioned the lyrics as well. I am always a sucker for songs when it's done well that sort of wait until the end before saying the name of the song. I don't know why. It's kind of like, you know, it, it, it feels kind of like you've gone on a journey throughout the entire song. And there's this sort of like payoff or this like, uh, you know, reveal at the end. And it's like, and that's just used perfectly here when he just like, kicks into the hallowed be thy name right at the end of the song after, you know, you know, six or seven minutes of absolute just sort of passion. We had a couple metal and harder rock tracks so far on the nominee list. None have gotten into the Hall of Songs. I would say what the hardest song that has been put in so far is maybe the boys are back in town, but that doesn't go near metal. Uh, talk about the evolution of this genre so far, because it's been a slow evolution, not like disco, which happened really quickly and then kind of faded out by the early 80s. We're still building toward what's going to be Metallica and Slayer and you know, groups that really come to define the mid late eighties and such. Uh, wh where do you think this song might do on a nominee list? And do you think that there might be better performing songs still to come in this genre? I do. I think that likely, you know, some of those bands that you mentioned are the ones that might have, uh, you know, particularly Metallica seems yeah. to me like a true, like a true metal band that might have some success. I don't know where to put guns and roses in that, place i think hopefully we'll have that discussion several episodes down the road about exactly where they fit in that whole canon i mean but you can hear that you know it, it's a california sound i think but it's that u.s based sound of you know metallica megadeth anthrax in this song and you can hear where it's coming from i mean it, you're right it's an interesting juxtaposition compared to disco not just because the two sounds are so different but because of their trajectories where like you go back to bands like sabbath that were you know, so long ago in the span of music, whereas disco kind of like bursts on the scene and then sort of, you know, flames out quickly, at least as its own sort of standalone genre. Whereas, you know, metal has a much longer, longer history 
so it's harder to sort of I think pinpoint down maybe one or two songs that are like you know the perfect sort of embodiment of it I mean I think this is a great song I wouldn't you know hold my breath of it doing extremely well on the in the voting but I do think again that we're probably going to get to the, some of those mid 80s songs that are influenced by this that will be a little bit uh you know get a little bit uh, more in the votes well you did mention guns and roses i just have to mention that the instrumental portion at the end of this song that really kicks this song into overdrive that's the same chord progression as paradise city's big outro instrumental like it's the same thing <laughs> this is hugely influential though i mean i not, i'm not disparaging gnr they're incredible in their own right but this is really influential this is a big one of course we have toto with rosanna from march of 1982 going from the hellfire and brimstone of iron maiden to the smooth sounds of peak yacht rock I love Toto. Uh, this is exciting. I mean, this is so much fun to talk about. Toto 4. Toto 4. Toto IV. The story of Toto starts with David Page, whose dad, Marty, was a popular L.A. session pianist and arranger. A keyboardist himself, David was known throughout the scene as a good player. The same is true for David's high school buddy and drummer, Jeff Procaro. He, along with brother Steve, a keyboardist, and Mike, a bassist, were gifted musicians, thanks in part to dad, Joe, a longtime session percussionist. The Page and Procaro kids got gigs early on throughout the L.A. area, playing with Sonny and Cher in the early 70s when they were teens. Another friend, bassist David Hungate, would join them. The kids went from Cher to Boz Skaggs, becoming the backing band and occasional writers for Skaggs' 76 album Silk Degrees. We mentioned Lowdown back in the 76 episode as a nomination. They'd also play on records by Steely Dan, Seals and Crofts, and Joe Cocker. That success led Jeff and David Page to start their own standalone band. They recruited David Hungate, Jeff's brother Steve, another high school friend and guitarist Steve Lukather, and SS Fool singer Bobby Kimball, and formed Toto. Why the name? Maybe the dog from The Wizard of Oz. Maybe Latin for all-encompassing. Either way, Toto. Their debut album was 78's Toto, featuring the smash singles Georgie Porgy and Hold the Line. Then came the not-as-popular Hydra in 79, which I have on vinyl. Great album. And the definitely not-as-popular Turn Back in 81. Not so good. Pressured by their label Columbia to come up with a hit or else, they got a big budget and plenty of time to record their Make or Break album. Titled Toto 4, Total IV, whatever you want to call it. It was definitely a make. The album went to number four, generated four top 40 singles, and won five Grammys, including Album of the Year. Rosanna, the lead track was a number two hit and won three Grammys alone, including record of the year. And make no mistake, this is a record of the year. Immaculately arranged and performed, wonderfully produced, 
this is a pocket symphony in the 80s. It is the update of good vibrations we never thought we needed. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, it's funny the way that this sort of, uh, this is one that you don't hear a lot in movies that are about the 80s. It's sort of, it is so, it is perfect of the era. It's this beautiful, beautiful production. And it was number two. And like you said, it's this Grammy winning smash. And I feel like for whatever reason, it hasn't, it doesn't have that kind of, you know, uh, cachet to it when you're going back and and making like an 80s movie or an 80s TV show, even though every time I listen to this, I have like a new favorite part. It's like, sometimes it's just like the drum. Sometimes it's just, it's just all great. It was never really cool to like Toto though. I think that's it, right? right? Because yeah, Toto I mean, were these session guys who became kind of pop stars for some reason, and they were all nerdy looking. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. It's like, they're good. They're unbelievably talented, but it's like, it's not cool to like them. So when you're making a movie about something that happened 40 years ago, you kind of, you know, want to live vicariously or seem like you're cooler. So you don't come out with the song that's the popular one. You come out with the one that might be a little bit edgier, even if people weren't actually listening to it. And then you pretend like everybody was listening to it. Um, but anyway, but like I said, I love a different part about this every time. I don't know, just the most recent listen, just absolutely love that, you know, keyboard solo outro. Um, but it's like, there's so many different pieces to it. And yet somehow the whole manages to be even greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, it's just produced perfectly. Yeah. You have a keyboard synthesized, uh, electronic keyboard solo, uh, going into a guitar solo by Lukather. That's just crunchy and balls out to the wall only for like 15 seconds. have a doo-wop section uh that kind of is the hook almost and you have some little slices of horn sections kind of an r&b thing but overall this is a pretty basic pop song in the verses that is defined by jeff Procaro's drum this is his iconic rosanna shuffle that if you go to youtube and look up jeff Procaro rosanna shuffle or whatever you want to call it you'll find a video of him from an old VHS of him drumming. It's a drum, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? A workshop or what have you, where he's doing this beat. And he basically combined Bernard Purdy's Purdy Shuffle, which you'll find on Steely Dan's Home at Last from the Asia album. He combines that with Led Zeppelin's Fool in the Rain, John Bonham's drum beat there. So those two kind of shuffle beats together. Then he adds a little bit more, I think, on the on the bass drum or something like that. There's like a kick there. And it creates this unbelievably complex and hard to do, very hard to do drum beat that is consistent throughout most of the song, except for maybe the doo-wop parts. And it by itself is a record. You could put that drum beat, the entire drum part by itself isolated on a record and sell it. I mean, it won't do really well, but there'll be people who buy it and love it. I mean, it is one of the better drum parts in rock and pop history. I mean, it is, it is at that top level. Yeah. I mean, you said it, it's hard. There's also videos of very good drummers trying to do it and failing <laughs> miserably. It's pretty yeah. fun. I mean, it's really amazing how like, I mean, he just sort of came up with it and then nobody else could even imitate it. I mean, it really is that good. I mean, my, you asked at the beginning of the episode about my sort of experiences. This video is one of the like, just sort of, you know, iconic moments of my childhood where I just, it's the first song that I can remember 
where like, I don't remember hearing it on the radio. I just remember it from MTV. I remember it from the video and all these sort of little moments and just being absolutely captivated. You go back and watch it now. It's, there's not a lot going on in the video, but it is pretty funny and it's perfectly, you know, of the era. And it's got, you know, some, some people who would go on to be big stars in the video. Uh, the, the woman who's in it, who is playing Rosanna, I think her name's Cynthia Rhodes. I forgot to write it down, but I think she would go on to be in Dirty Dancing. But one of the backup dancers there is also the star of Dirty Dancing, Patrick Swayze. So you've got these sort of iconic 80s figures, uh, you know, just hanging out there in the background. And uh, I don't know, there's something about the video that just always sort of sucked me in. And it's the one that I can still remember, you know, watching in my basement and just sort of being <laughs> like, like, I can't separate it even today from uh, the video separated from the song. Yeah, Bobby Kimball having sex with the, the keyboard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who is it? Steve Percaro plays the uh, the the lead character in the video trying to get the girl. Yeah, I think uh, so. You know, and, and maybe not the best choice for lead character. <laughs> um, and the one poor thing about the legacy of Rosanna is it would definitely begin a string of songs by Toto where it's just a woman's name. They got Pamela. They got Angela. They have like Beth or something or Tara or something like there's about seven or eight songs after this that Toto would do with uh, women's names as the title. Each one progressively worse, by the way. So there you go. <laughs> but Toto's still great. Love him. another car crash into what an incredibly iconic and influential beat this of course is african babata and the soul sonic force from april of 82 planet rock so this is the beginning of a lot of things right we had a couple rap songs earlier in the podcast we had rapper's delight we had the breaks and those were set basically over good times, sort of variations of it. But this is like an entirely different thing that sets off an entirely different. I mean, we're talking about half of music basically is created with this song. Yeah, it's funny. I actually had a note uh, the other day in here where I was going to say that this song is really here for its influence and for what came next. And it doesn't necessarily hold up as something that's like repeated listening but the more I listen to it, the more I yeah. second guess myself on that. And it actually does really hold up well. Absolutely. It does. Lance Taylor was born in 57 in New York, growing up in the projects in the Bronx. A big music buff. He joined a local gang, the Black Spades, in order to help police his community. But then Taylor won an essay contest whose prize was a trip to Africa. 
It changed his life as he aligned himself with the teachings of the Zulu nation and brought that back to New York. He renamed himself Africa Bambada, Asim, and formed the Bronx River Organization as a way to steer young Bronx kids away from the more hard scrabble traditional gang life. Bambada started hosting parties sometime in the 70s where he'd play disc jockey with his records. Building a following as the fresh hip-hop scene grew, Bambada created multiple crews and was known as the master of records. In 1982, he premiered a test cassette of EBN-OZN spoken word recording AEIOU sometimes Y, which was made completely on a computer with samples, literally ground zero for modern hip-hop. Bambada went deeper into this style. He and producer Arthur Baker were influenced by Kraftwerk and started working on a record inspired by the band's numbers from Computer World, which we talked about in our last episode, and Trans Europe Express. Kraftwerk was angry about that, and Tommy Boy Records, which released the song, paid them a dollar for every record sold. They used a Roland TR-808 for beats and both a Micro Moog and a Prophet 5 for synths. The result is this, Planet Rock. You hear Kraftwerk throughout, but you hear... As they kind of get away from Kraftwerk toward the second half of the song, this entirely new opening up of music, this dance beat that would come to define dance music for the next 40 years. Yeah, again, we've talked a little bit about the use of the term rock. I find it really interesting that this is called Planet Rock and not mm-hmm. Planet Planet Rap or something different. And I don't know, I did some, I couldn't really figure out why. I'm not sure there is one answer. I think one is maybe, you know, the term rap had not yet become you know, completely synonymous with the full style of music. Um, but also maybe it's a, it's more of a statement that this is where rock is going and that this is like what planet rock is, you know, quote unquote now, which is, you know, 1982 when this is being done, but also the future, which is sort of where this, you know, this song kind of takes place. Well, uh, I, 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 I find it interesting that I listening to this, I heard those tag team vocals throughout, which reminded me a lot of run DMC and how they would label themselves the kings of rock, and they would really lean on rock as something that they would call themselves throughout the 80s. So maybe there is something to sort of taking rock back from white people and saying, no, we started the whole thing. This is where it's going now. And groups like Run DMC will then take it to the next place. Yeah, I mean, I think even if that was not intentional all the way, I think it's a really cool reading of it, that it is kind of grabbing rock and saying like, no, this is actually where rock music is going to be in the future. And to your point about the influence that this song has, I mean, that's exactly right. So I did want to mention the sense here, you know, this does start out as basically a Kraftwerk ode in a lot of ways, but then it really does carry into its own thing. And the sense here go from Kraftwerk, that Trans Europe Express line to a more spookier sound, which I talked about in our 81 episode, Rick James's Super Freak has more of that spooky synth vibe that's really going to come to define 80s R&B and 80s music. And here it is again, right? And I also kind of get some of that Rick James vocal out of the vocals, you know, that the way that Rick James sort of played up different characters in his vocals in super freak and other songs from that era, 
you're hearing that here too. So it feels like that evolution of street music, of rap and R&B and soul and what's coming out of black neighborhoods is really evolving quickly here with this one. Yeah, they're also kind of creating these like science fiction-y characters who are, you know, not necessarily of this world. I have to think that that's the uh, direct influence for Fish's uh, sci-fi soldiers from last Halloween. Did you have uh, to drag them into this? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but no, but it's I would like it also sort of encompasses this like uh, the pop music, which we talked about a little bit, this idea that when you're on the dance floor, when you're at this club, that you're in a different world. But whereas pop music is kind of taking that into a really negative place, this is a little bit more positive and it's a little bit more about sort of, you know, giving yourself over to the music and letting go. Whereas, you know, uh, in pop music, you sort of playing up this idea that you had been sort of taken control of. Where here, it's a little bit more about freeing yourself, which I think is a pretty cool, again, another cool juxtaposition. Yeah, and we're going to hear something a little different from that a little bit later on in the episode. But first, another wild transition. It gives me immense joy to announce our fifth nominee. This is George Strait from June of 1982 with Amarillo by Morning. Uh, listener, I just want to mention that this was my pick, by the way. <laughs> I put this onto my list and Chris had agreed. Just want to set the record straight. Absolutely. I'm thrilled. I mean, I'm so happy to talk about this. I could talk about George Strait songs for, uh, I mean, if we just mentioned his number one songs, we'd be here for several hours. Please don't do that. <laughs> George Harvey Strait was born in 52 in Poteet, Texas. He grew up nearby Pearsall, Texas, the son of a math teacher and a cattle ranch owner. Quite the combination. He describes his first band as garage rock, but his favorite band influence was the Beatles. After a couple of years, he drifted toward country and started emulating the greats, Hank Williams, Hank Thompson, George Jones, and so on. In 71, he eloped with his high school sweetheart, Norma, joined the U.S. Army, ended up stationed in Hawaii, and formed an army band known as Ramblin' Country. After he was discharged, he went back to Texas and formed the Ace in the Hole Band. Though they were a smash regionally, they struck out in Nashville and never scored a record deal. In 81, he told his band he was quitting music and going to take up designing cattle pens. Norma said to give it one more shot, and he struck a one-song deal with MCA Records. If it was a hit, he had a contract. If not, cattle pen designing it is. The first single, Unwound, hit number six on the country charts, and the rest is history. So Amarillo by Morning is from his second full-length EP, Straight from the Heart. Good stuff. It was a critical and commercial success and where Straight really found his sound, breaking through the so-called country pop of the time and becoming the first to be called a new traditionalist. Amarillo was not quite as successful as the classic Full Heart and Memory, the first single from the album, which hit number one. But this has become an enduring fan favorite. It was written by Paul Frazier and Terry Stafford, recorded by Stafford in 73. It's about a rodeo cowboy driving from San Antonio to Amarillo, reflecting on his hard lifestyle. 
Chris, have you ever met a rodeo cowboy or rodeo clown as they might call them? I have not. No. Okay, so I've actually written stories about rodeo cowboys, rodeo clowns. Uh, here in Houston, we have the biggest rodeo in North America every year. And so I got to sort of engage myself in that lifestyle a little bit. Very, they're not as glamorous as you think, right? But the way that he talks about being a rodeo cowboy, traveling through Texas and working this very hard life in this song is wonderfully romantic. And you feel that as he sings it, his voice is so perfect for it. We'll talk about that. But he really does bring out the romanticism in what seemingly is sort of an everyday job for somebody who works the carnival circuit in Texas. Yeah, I mean, you said it. It's, I love the structure of the song. It sort of starts out and it's like, you know, you can sort of envision the narrator here. It starts out and he is dreading going to Amarillo. He has to be there by the morning. His body's beat up. He's on this tour. And then by the end of the song, he sort of talked himself into the fact that, you know, he's going to stay on the bowl for eight seconds and he's going to actually do it. And his like Straits voice delivers the last verse with this sort of air of hope to it. And it's not quite a repeat of the first verse, but the beginning of it is. And it's this sort of, I just think the delivery of the structure is, uh, I mean, it tells an entire story in less than three minutes about him sort of, waking up, coming to terms with what's going to happen next, and then talking himself into not only do I have to do this, but I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it well, and this is, I'm free because I can do this. I feel like this is ground zero for that country sound that would really become popular in the late 80s into the early 90s and then really blow up into 90s country. You could see how these would sow the seeds for that 90s prime country movement. But Straight is a wonderful vocalist. He's got a very velvety tone, but it's very twangy as well. And just super perfect for this pretty simple arrangement, right? There's not a lot going on with the arrangement really lets the story shine. And I think that's what makes this so effective. And the lyrics are great. I mean, you want to listen to these lyrics and the lyric about how it's basically, he remembers where he lost a saddle. He remembers where he lost all these things, but he can't remember where he lost his girlfriend. It was somewhere along the way, right? Like that's a perfect country line. You know, the things that are most important to me are the things that kind of keep me going day after day. The women, they're going to come and go fine. It's just a perfect little country lyric. I mean, this is 100,000% like the perfect country song. Yeah, I mean, George Strait's one of these guys too where it's, you know, he is now like he is the king of country. I mean, said he has 60 number one hits, uh, 33 platinum albums, 13 of those are called multi-platinum. He's sold over 100 million records. He is the country star's country star. But he's kind of like untouchable for other country stars. Like he has spawned some imitators in some way but there's nobody who really tries to be george Strait because they all know that they can't and it's funny when you hmm. hear you know there's all these feuds in country music where one person doesn't like one person one person but it's like they all yeah. have a reverence for george Strait as the guy who really made you know he's like 
it's like, you know, you hear golfers talk about Tiger Woods. Like he's the reason why they're able to make all this, these millions of dollars on tour. That's what George Strait was. George Strait was the one who sort of brought country music radio back from the dead and led to these, you know, record deals, song deals, everything. It's like he's sort of revitalized an entire industry. And, you know, his legacy lives on today. He's still making songs. People are still, you know, uh, trying to become the next George Strait, even though inside they all know they never will be. And to this day, George Strait plays the very final night of the Houston Rodeo, which is at the Texans Stadium, NRG. And it's a sellout crowd. They're all there to just listen to George sing the songs that he's been singing for the past 40 years. And it's an amazing show. And hopefully one year I get to go because I would love to be affected by that. And maybe the fiddle outro here that I'll play here will make me cry a little bit. We'll see. Now that, Chris, is a transition. Our sixth nominee from 1982. This is Come On Eileen by Dexie's Midnight Runners. So you talked about Dancing With Myself as one of those songs that in the right mood, you can you know think of it as maybe one of the greatest songs ever written. That's this song for me. This is absolutely <laughs> one of my favorite songs of all time. Uh, I, I, when I hear the beginning of the song, I immediately get a smile on my face. I absolutely love, I adore this song. It's such a weird outlier for this episode and for this year. But let's get into Dexie's Midnight Runners. Founded by Kevin Rowland and Kevin Al Archer, both veterans of the Birmingham, England punk band The Killjoys. They took their name from the slang term for dextroamphetamine, a popular party drug among the UK's northern soul scene. After opening for the specials who wore suits, Rowland decided that his band needed a signature look themselves. They opted for leather jackets and wool hats. Out of De Niro's mean streets, as one journalist put it. Signed to EMI Records in 80, their single Gino about American R&B legend Gino Washington was actually a British number one hit. That single ultimately was included on their first full-length EP, Searching for the Young Soul Rebels. Mercury Records picked up the band in 81, and their first release was July of 82's Two Rye, recorded during a period of turmoil and changing band members. But the fractured lineup of Rowan, plus nine other players, put together the band's best work yet, a blend of British pop, soul, new wave, and Celtic folk. Come On Eileen was the second single from the album and was a much-needed hit following up the Celtic Soul Brothers, which failed to find much chart success. This would be number one in the UK, the biggest-selling single in 82 in the UK, and it would be the band's first single in the US, going to number 13 in an era of synth-pop and punk and all of these new sounds. Here's some fiddle and banjo solo. Go at it. (laughs) 
And don't forget the trombone. I said a couple <laughs> episodes ago when we were talking about Diana Ross, I'm coming out that we had the trombone solo. And maybe we would get another song that had trombone. This is it. This is what I was talking about. I love it. Just so much noise. I mean, this is like overwhelming your like your earbuds with fiddle, trombone. Uh, like then it gets quiet at the end and then it gets loud. It's like everything about <laughs> it is just fun. It's just like, you know, it's just overwhelming you with sound. Now, this really is one of the finest most fun pop songs you i've ever heard right like i i've listened to this song a million times it's one of those quintessential 80s songs again really weird that it's considered a quintessential 80s song where it doesn't sound anything like the 80s around it right but yet it does because the production style is very much in line with everything else going on at the time and it does kind of weirdly sound okay along with all these other songs from 82 and such but it is a lot of fun And of course, it is a super, super filthy song. I mean, it's good. This is the song that Billy Joel thought he was writing when he wrote Only the Good Die Young. It's like he like has this idea of, you know, the come out Virginia part where he thinks he's being sort of sly and thinks he's making commentary when in fact all he's being is like a creepy, dirty old man. This one comes to it through the vision of a teenage boy. And it's got this longing to it. And it's got this, it just has the balance where it, to me, it's like it, it comes from this sort of world where of like, like Catholic oppression and, you know, trying like, you know, uh, you mean everything to me, right? At this moment, you mean everything. It's just perfect. The longing just happens to work. And uh, I don't know. I just think it's, I love it. Well, it's super subtle when the title is come on, Eileen, <laughs> come on, Eileen. <laughs> well, I mean, he admits he has dirty thoughts. Or they verge on dirty. Actually, they're not dirty. They verge on dirty. They verge on dirty. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But yeah, this is just uh, a lot of fun, right? This is one of the most fun tracks uh, that we've had on this podcast. Who knows if it's going to make it into the actual Hall of Songs. Then again, our listeners, I they have proved me in different ways over the course of time. So if this has some sort of big standing in West Virginia, I wouldn't be surprised. No, I do associate this with fraternity parties, though, in college. Uh, I mean, like, this was one of those ones that it's like, I mean, again, without any lyrics, this would be a ridiculously fun song. When that chorus kicks in and people start dancing, it's great. With the lyrics, it's got this wink-wink, nudge-nudge quality to it. Putting them together, it's a perfect fraternity party song. It's a perfect dance party song. And again, like I said, I've heard this a thousand times. And whenever it ends, my first reaction is, I got to restart that and hear it again. All right, half the songs are down, six done. We have six more to go, but first let's break up the noise with a little bit of my noise, a little bit of advertising, let's say. So this episode comes out May 8th, which means you'll have between May 8th and 15th to go to hallsongs.com, scroll to the end of the website on any page, and you'll see that big red ballot that we have every time we have a vote. You go up there, you vote for up to 10 songs that you would consider the best of the best that are on the ballot, the ones that you think deserve placement in the Hall of Songs. We will then come back 
after doing a week of voting and then reveal to you whether there were any songs that got into the Hall of Songs and if there were, which songs or song they were or was. So that will all happen again. May 8th to 15th is the voting period. We will come back with a results show on May 20th. And then we'll have a 83 episode on May 22nd. And then before that, we'll have a Veterans Committee episode on May 15th. A lot going on in Hall of Songs. Chris, I don't know. Where can you find us? I always do this every episode. But just tell people about our podcast a little further. All right. Well, first, you can find our podcast anywhere where podcasts are to be found. Uh, we really like it. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate us, review us, give us a five-star rating. That does help a lot of people uh, find us. But you can get us on Spotify, Google, any of the apps that have uh, uh, podcasts as well. You can find us on social media. Uh, Twitter's fun, so hit us up there on Twitter. We are just at Hall of Songs. You can email us at hallofsongspod at gmail.com. And you can also find our spinoff podcast, if you will, Modern Songs, uh, all the same places on the podcast apps. And also on Twitter, Modern Songs Pod uh, is the handle on Twitter. Hit us up there. Let us know what you want us to talk about uh, from the last 15 years. Here we're back in 1982, but let us know what you want us to talk about since 2005 because we'd love to hear from people and give us some suggestions on that one. Yeah, our most recent episode of Modern Songs, we talked about Maren Morris and her single Circles Around This Town. We also talked about LCD Sound System and their iconic track all my friends which is one of my favorites ever so go check out modern songs wherever you find podcasts just type modern songs in a search function you'll find it there we have well now 10 episodes of modern songs so go check that out you have plenty of content to listen to from the both of us you should be so lucky all right let's get back into it it's time to get to the second half of the hall of songs nominees from 82 It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Well, halftime interrupted what would have been another really fun train wreck, but our seventh nominee is The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Broken glass everywhere, people pissing on the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise, got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back, junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far, cause a man with the touch truck repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. So Planet Rock was extremely influential for one side of hip-hop culture and what would become dance. This is stupidly influential in an entirely different way. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, this sounds like some stuff that we've heard uh, the last couple episodes, but... Only on the surface. Okay, so Grandmaster Flash was born Joseph Sadler, 58, Bridgetown, Barbados. His family moved to the Bronx when he was young, got really into his dad's record collection. He also knew electronics really well, and after high school, got into the New York hip-hop scene as a DJ. Very quickly, he became the premier DJ in the city, pioneering or perfecting a number of techniques, including the backspin, punch phrasing, and scratching. In 78, Grandmaster Flash formed a rap group of Melly Mel, real name Melvin Glover, the Kid Creole, real name Nathaniel Glover, and Keith Cowboy, real name Keith Wiggins. Cowboy is said to have created the term hip-hop. 
Grandmaster Flash and the three MCs became Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, way after Raheem, real name Guy Todd Williams, and Scorpio, real name Eddie Morris, joined. After earning a reputation playing at area parties, they were signed to the very new Sugar Hill Records in 80. Flash's DJ recording The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel was pretty influential as an early turntablism record. Not long after, Melly Mel and Duke Bouti wrote a song in response to the 1980 New York City transit strike called The Message. It's far more lyrical than anything Grandmaster Flash was doing and, in fact, wasn't really a fit in the house party culture of New York hip-hop in 82. But it proved hugely influential, as I mentioned up top, as it put the MC up front and it changed the way we all think about and listen to rap. And also, this is just political it's talking about systemic racism and oppression. Lyrically, this is on an entirely different level and maybe the most well-written song that we've even had on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I wish it wasn't as relevant today as it is. I mean, it's always sad to listen to this and feel like, wow, that's what they were talking about 40 years ago and then be like, oh, well, yeah. Um, but uh, it's, uh, I mean, it really is. And it's like, it's just hitting things head on. We've talked a little bit about things like, you know, dancing in the streets and good times where, there's kind of this idea of dancing through it all and finding, you know, finding good times on the dance floor, finding good times uh, with friends throughout everything. And this is kind of just takes that and goes the opposite direction, uh, confronts it head on and just says like, look, we're just going to talk about everything that's going on. We're just going to throw it out on the page and, uh, uh, you know, do with that what you will. It's a lot more just sort of, it's really hard hitting. So yeah, that opening Broken Glass Everywhere sets up Melly Mel for that iconic first verse where he's talking about how he's trapped and he can't get out of where he is. That leads to that incredible hook of don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. And his laugh right after that, that is sort of a bravado laugh, but it's also a laugh that I would imagine comes out of straight anxiety and straight nervousness. You get the feeling of, you know, when you laugh, when you're really anxious about something and you're trying to sort of show yourself and sort of, you know, pump up yourself. But that laugh is showing much more than that. That's what this is. And the entire song is about how these guys, these black men living in New York City are always being watched and there's always trouble that's being thrown at them and they can't get out of where they are and they're disenfranchised. And it's just this harrowing look at what life is like in the late seventies, early eighties in New York city, being an underrepresented minority who doesn't have the same uh, opportunity and the same, he's not on the same equal footing as white people in the city. It's just a searing, searing lyric. Yeah. I mean, you said it, that laughing is just like chilling in a way it makes it somehow makes everything even more unsettling. Uh, which is just to me, it's like it gives it just this extra, extra edge where like what you said, it's like it's sort of a knowing laugh that just puts you on edge when you're hearing it. It was plain to see that your life was lost. You was cold and your body swung back and forth. But now your eyes sing the sad, sad song of how you live so fast and die so young. So don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep uh, And I mean, in addition to the laugh, I just love the whole delivery of this. I mean, there's really a great melody to this. 
that comes across with uh, like seeming effortlessness. I mean, it just seeming effortless. It just sort of flows like from line to line and it's sing songy in a way while also seeming conversational. Uh, it's this great, uh, I mean, I just, it, it fits what they're singing about perfectly. Yeah. And the arrangement too, you have this sort of electronic sound is very synthesizer heavy sound. That is not good times, right? It's not the boom bast, you know, of planet rock, but it's definitely a new sound for hip hop. And it would be used a lot in the future. Diddy would of course take it for himself later on, but you would hear that over and over and over again. I mean, this is iconic in so many ways, both lyrically and in the production of the song. And got to mention that the end of this song, you have a moment where a police officer comes in and tries to detain the guys who are just hanging out, having a good time. It reminds me so much of living for the city by Stevie wonder, which was what? 73, 74. It's that same kind of thing where, things aren't changing. You know, young black men, young black women in these cities are still being targeted. And this song is only going to be another step in that. And we're going to hear more and more of that as we go further into the eighties, of course. Yeah. And one quick note too, is on the length of this. I mean, you know, it's, uh, this is a long song and a lot of the, the early hip hop songs and a lot of the early rap songs have this sort of length to them. They're sort of, they're taken right from the dance floor and even like good times and some of the chic stuff is like that. It's going to be interesting to talk about as we move forward and talk about more and more hip hop songs, more and more rap songs, how they start to become more like singles. And as they get pulled away from the dance floor and more towards, you know, something a little bit different, more towards sort of a shorter, conciser statement. Definitely not as jarring a transition with this one, but still interesting enough. This is the psychedelic furs from July of 1982 and their single love my way. So we finally get Todd Rundgren in this podcast <laughs> as a nominee, right? In a roundabout way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> psychedelic furs, Richard Butler born in 56 in London was an art school kid who didn't do any music until graduating. 77, he started up a band with his brother, Tim, who played bass, plus guitarist Roger Morris, drummer Paul Wilson, and saxophonist Duncan Kilburn. Wilson would exit in time as the band cycled through drummers. Vince Eli would be the man during much of their early period, while guitarist John Ashton would join as well. Highly influenced by 60s music, the guys named themselves the Psychedelic Furs. They'd play around for a couple of years before breaking it and getting a record deal. 1980s, the Psychedelic Furs album was critically lauded for its artsy approach to modern British music. Follow-up Talk, Talk, Talk added more pop sensibility and produced the legacy single Pretty in Pink. 
Both albums were produced by upstart Brit Steve Lillywhite. But Morrison Kilburn would leave the band after Talk, 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 and with Change in the Air, the band decided to record the next album in the U.S. They searched for a new producer to work with and opted for Todd Rundgren, who brought them to his home studio in Woodstock, New York. The sessions brought out the best in the band, resulting in the album Forever Now. This is the lead single. I think when Todd gets involved with any band, he typically brings out the best in them, whether or not they get along. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, uh, Rundgren to me is kind of like, this is like the 80s wall of sound is what pops up to me where there's like a cacophony of instruments, a cacophony of sounds. And like objectively it should be too much, but somehow it's not. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you have this very rock and roll sort of backbeat and the backbeat changes from time to time. You have a certain kind of backbeat in the verse and then it kind of changes a different rhythm in the chorus. But then you have all these different synths on top of that. And then of course you have a marimba, which I believe Rundgren actually plays. You have a bunch of different background vocals throughout the song. Flo and Eddie do some of the background vocals. They are from the Turtles. Uh, you know, very complex arrangement, so many different things going on. And yet what shines through is this very simple song that doesn't have a lot of words, but the words all mean something. Yeah. I mean, this is one I was alluding to earlier about that. It's this like classic 80s song, but it peaked at number 44 on the hot 100. And it's part of this, you know, like I think of it as like this 80s revisionism. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the show sex education where it's, it sort of takes place in the modern day. It sort of takes place in the eighties and the soundtrack is, you know, sort of like very, very finely curated. And this song's there. There's a lot of songs that are what we would consider, you know, new wave things that would be played on, uh, you know, Sirius XM's first wave, uh, which I am as guilty of this as anyone. That's one of my favorite stations on Sirius. I love it. But like, these were not the hits of the eighties and these were probably not what high school kids were listening to in the eighties. You know, I know it's not what like younger kids were listening to in the eighties. It's not what was all over pop radio. Uh, and we sort of have this, uh, you know, revision where I think it's like, we're listening to the eighties the way we would like it to be where there's some of this stuff, like these are better songs than a lot of the stuff that was top, you know, a lot of the stuff, not all of it, but that was topping the charts. And there's sort of this idea of, Oh yeah, these like, you know, sophisticated high school kids this is what they were sitting around listening to were these sort of progressively <laughs> lyrical immaculately put together produced songs when in fact that's not the case these were this is great great music of the era but it comes it, it gets here through its influence not because of this overwhelming popularity of the time well, think of what posters were in ferris bueller's bedroom basically <laughs> he had like a simple minds poster in there and that was i think before uh, don't you forget about me. So, you know, he definitely was on the cutting edge of British New Wave uh, and new romantic music. I this is like a kind of an early new romantic song, right? It has that sort of uh, lovely warm feel to it. And I always thought this was just a basic love song, love my way. 
I never really quite understood the lyrics. And then I started reading into them. And then you read about the song itself and what Richard Butler was getting at. And essentially, this is about rejecting conformity, accepting not accepting the norms and and being yourself and rejecting the people out there in public who are saying you got to be this or be that. And Butler even said in 83 that this was a basically a love letter to the LGBTQ community. And that's I never got that, but here it is and now you read the lyrics and you're like, "Oh, okay, makes total sense." And I think for 83 for a song that is very pop-facing and very radio-friendly, that's a pretty great thing, and that's a pretty different thing than what you would normally hear on the charts. So I give Richard Butler a lot of credit for being, you know, just very forthright with that. Also, Richard Butler lives in America, lives in New York still. He now lives in Beacon, New York, which is where I used to live. He was so touched by the Hudson Valley of New York that he decided to stay there. So shout out to Richard Butler and Beacon. Love Beacon. Great place. I'll also just quickly mention this is a great example of another 80s thing, which is the awkward fade out. <laughs> which is where instead of deciding to come up with some way of a- ending the song, it's like they just had the band keep on playing and it fades out like just slightly too abruptly to make a little bit of sense. Tell me, say one thing, Nancy, if you understand. Who one thing, Nancy, if you understand. What make them a talk about me? Ambition. Say what make them a talk about me? Ambition. Come and say some of them a ask me where me get it from. Tell some of them a ask me where me get it from. I told them, no, no, it's from creation. I told them, no, no, it's from creation. Bam, bam, hey, yo. Another interesting transition. This is Sister Nancy with what has been called the most sampled reggae song of all time, Bam Bam. So let's get into all that. Sister Nancy was born Oflin Russell in 1962 in Kingston, Jamaica. She grew up one of 15 children in a pretty strict household. So she rebelled, running away for months at a time and getting into the reggae scene and specifically dance hall. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Grace Jones. Dance Hall came of age in the 70s. It's named after the Jamaican dance halls where DJs held court over enormous sound systems. Sound systems are collections of speakers, turntables, and generators, allowing for music to hit the people outdoors at parties. They did this because radio frequencies couldn't always get out to the people, but the sound systems could. In time, reggae artists would make their own vinyls strictly for the DJs and the sound systems, and the DJs themselves would sing and speak over the music. At first, dancehall was about slower rhythms, but it would speed up considerably in time. Always, though, the genre focused not so much on politics and Rastafarianism, but dancing and sex. Over her family's objections, Elflin went fully into being a DJ and became the first true female dancehall performer as Sister Nancy. Bam Bam is largely a cover of Toots and the Maytals' track of the same name, though Sister Nancy's version is very much restyled. It's been called the most sampled track in reggae history, but due to her original record contracts, Sister Nancy's royalties have been limited. Though, the song did appear in a 2014 Reebok ad, and she filed a lawsuit, and she was able to get some payment. She deserves a lot of payment. And maybe Toots <laughs> and the Maytals receive some payments, whatever. But this is, it's hard to kind of navigate the waters. But obviously, what she did with this is 
extremely influential and I think she should be compensated correctly for it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a, like I said, it's a, this weird thing where she, it's kind of a cover. I mean, it's a cover in a way that like the lyrics are there, but if you go back and listen to the Toots and the Maytals version, it's in no way the same quote unquote song. I mean, it just, Betty Davis eyes. Right. And it's, and it, but it's like, and uh, so she was able to, I think they got credit because, uh, I don't think he had a writer's credit, but they were compensated because they were borrowing the song. But then she records this. Everybody takes this rhythm. Everybody takes this kind of, you know, the the backing that she has here and uses it for their own purposes. And, uh, you know, the record company that she recorded for is making a boatload of cash and she just isn't. Yeah. And what she says on the record is fantastic in that we are very used to DJs and MCs bragging about themselves over beats, but she is among the first to do this. She's also a woman doing this, which has not been done. And what she's saying, I'm a lady. I'm not a man. MC is my ambition. And sister Nancy, she won in 3 million stuff like that. Just beaming out. And she is in a world of men doing something that only men have done and showing herself to be better than any of them at it. And not only that, but sparking an entire music genre from what she's doing. Yeah, although, of course, she also calls herself the businesswoman, which has a little bit of irony is what we talked about from the rights. Although I think that's a little bit more aimed at the idea of, though, you know, she means business. She is the DJ. She's the one who shows up and brings people to the club, even though, as you said, it's like she's doing this from the position of being a woman in the dance hall scene, which stands out in and of itself. And people are not going to respect that. And in fact, she is, you know, in her mind and probably in the minds of many others, the best even though it starts from this position of, you know, we're not going to listen to her because she's a woman. She's the one who brings everybody there. And she is the businesswoman in that sense. And like you said, if there's, it's got the perfect to me, like braggadocio where it comes across just, uh, uh, you know, it, she's talking herself up and she's doing it in a way that she's able to back up and she's able to back it up just alone in this track. And the influence of this track. Yes. It's both in hip hop and rap and all that, but it's also in, the actual dance hall style that has become very popular, especially in the early and mid nineties. I grew up listening to dance hall tracks, modern dance hall tracks like murder. She wrote girls, them sugar by Beanie man. Everyone falls in love. Those were staples on pop radio in the nineties. And so this is the beginnings of that. Those are much faster, sort of more produced tracks, but the genesis of that is right here right now. So it is, enormously influential for that reason alone.
And now we go back to percussive and synth-heavy new wave pop music with Tears for Fears. This is their September of 82 song from their album The Hurting. It is, of course, Mad World. For anyone who knows, this would have been funny to see that I had Tears for Fears on my initial draft of 12 songs and you had George Strait and not the other way around. (laughs) I guess I will make the little argument here that I don't think this is Tears for Fears at their best. I think this is a really good song and definitely worthy of the list, but I don't think they find themselves and hit their stride for another album. I think that's fair, but I do think there's other reasons why this song is, uh, you know, is worthy of the list. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a great song. Well, you will talk about that, but first let's talk about the band. Roland Orzabel and Kurt Smith met as teenagers in Bath, England. They had a band around 80 and 81 called graduate that had little success. Then they were session musicians for a band called neon, but started taking interest in synth pop and electronic music. They decided to try making it as a duo First under the name History of Headaches, which would not have worked out, and then Tears for Fears after the primal therapy work of psychologist Arthur Yanoff. Think about John Lennon and his primal screen therapy. Working at the home studio of keyboardist Ian Stanley and after getting a deal with Phonogram Records, Tears for Fears released their first two singles, Suffer the Children and Pale Shelter, though neither did well originally. Their third single was this, written in 81 by Orzabal after being inspired by a Duran Duran's breakout hit, Girls on Film. The subject matter is based on Yanov's therapy or, man, the world sucks. We're all just waiting to die. In a way, it's like Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads, but this is much more, what's the word, cold and industrial? Is that the right way to put it? I think so. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. I mean, this is what I'm glad I went back and read this because it was uh, it. My memories of it were correct, which is that I sort of associate this as being a contemporary to some of the later Tears for Fear songs that I'm sure we'll talk about in in future episodes. And in the U.S., this one went nowhere in 1982 and then was sort of I don't even know if it's officially re-released, but it just sort of came back into play. It came back onto MTV rotation after they found some success in the United States. That to me is sort of what it's like this sort of odd sort of out of place song a little bit where you're sort of jumping back in time. If you were, you know, my age listening to these guys, you listen to it, you kind of jump back. And I think that that's, uh, it's sort of this odd out of place song, which I think matches the song itself perfectly where it is intended to be uncomfortable and it's intended to be kind of a tough listen in a way where it's about depression, it's about struggle, and there's these sort of weird chimey sound effects in the back. There's uh, changes in the pace, there's changes in the chords, and it just sort of makes you, it keeps you on your toes, it keeps you off off balance a little bit, and I just think it works. interesting that this is a new wave group sort of at its broadest term and they come out of that british new wave scene but we've talked about human league we talked about just in this very episode yazoo and depeche mode and some of these groups that 
came out of it more of an artsy way. Like we, we want to do something that's more experimental, that's taking advantage of all the innovation that's happening in the late seventies and early eighties. And that's where these guys really do come from. They started with new wave, but they kind of switched when they decided to go alone as a duo. And so what you're hearing here, I just want to mention this album, the hurting the kinds of jobs that are listed on the liner notes. You have tune percussion, conducting rhythm programming jazz high dynamic toggle and computer programming those are just some of the jobs that are listed on the liner notes they're not just making live tracks anymore in a studio this is not the blues back in the 50s and 60s this is not the brill building this is using computers and using all the digital technology in front of you to manipulate and create something that sounds human in some way and somehow mad world does triumph in that this is a very cold sound but there is a sense of humanistic kind of rhythm and humanistic kind of uh arrangement in this uh i love the percussion track and how it changes several times it has this very herky-jerky rhythm in the verses then it becomes really driving in the pre-choruses and then into an organic drum beat in the chorus and then as the song progresses it kind of becomes all three of those things at the same time so tears for fears is always finding ways to create twists and turns in their otherwise experimental cold new wavy kind of sound and i think that's what makes them really exceptional is that they are not just computer nerds they're finding ways to manipulate that sound into something that is more human and more interesting yeah and i also think that they just write great songs and that's kind of what i was alluding to up at the beginning is that this song is one of those that has you know like i said the great bones this has found its way to uh, more popularity through a bunch of covers where they kind of slow it down and there's, you know, sort of a more sort of sparing arrangements of these songs. And I, for one, think that the Tears for Fears arrangement works really well because of like it sort of it's, you know, the, because it sort of keeps you on your edge and things like that. But the, you know, the slowed down sort of more, uh, you know, sparse arrangements, I also think, uh, you know, do it justice and do some of the lyrics justice and do the mo- the mood of it justice. And that's something I don't think you necessarily associate a lot with uh, new wave style, because like what you're saying, it's so heavily produced. It's kind of like once you pull away that production, what's left. And in this case, I think once you pull away the production, you have a great, great song. Okay, you've convinced me. (laughs) You didn't have to convince me, but whatever. Our 11th nominee is the third nominee from Prince. This is Little Red Corvette from his 1999 album of October 1982. I guess I should know by the way you popped your car sideways.
just getting to 1999. Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This is just incredible. This is my favorite song from the year. I don't think there's much of a question in my mind. What about you? So this was the one I was talking about up top. This was the first tape I remember buying by itself outside of the Columbia House. I got the, uh, I remember just the the cover, just thinking it was cool. I'm sure I had seen the video. I had no idea what the song was about. Thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, so I you? went and bought the tape. I would have been, I probably got this in 83 or 84. So I would have been six or seven. It wouldn't oh have my been goodness. right at the time, but it would have been, uh, you know, sometime <laughs> down the road. Wow. If only Mrs. Jones knew at the time. <laughs> She was too busy listening to the Commodores and Frankie Valley. <laughs> so Prince back with another nominee a year after the title track of 81's controversy. He made the bold choice of following controversy with a double album, 1999, though largely perceived as a party anthem. The title track was written as an anti-nuclear proliferation protest. It would go to number 44 in its initial release, but was Prince's breakthrough single overseas hitting the top 10 on many charts. Little Red Corvette was the second single and the song that really, truly put Prince on the map throughout the U.S. Lisa Coleman, who we mentioned before, told the tale of Prince coming up with the song after falling asleep in her pink Mercury. It's a mix of his earlier funk stylings and more popish songs hit home, and the track would get to number six on the pop charts. Perhaps more importantly, the videos for both 1999 and Little Red Corvette would get heavy rotation on MTV, and they were some of the first tracks by black artists to do so as MTV tried to find its footing or not be so racist. <laughs> I talked about how earlier Prince is kind of finding that Minneapolis sound and perfecting it, and he gets to it by controversy, and you hear it throughout. 1999 is pretty much him expanding on that in a really amazing way. There's amazing funk workouts. There's this really deep sort of sex soul. There's some rock in there. He's really got all control over what he's able to do. This, though, is him saying, I'm going to make a pop hit. I'm just going to make a pop hit. And I actually hear a little bit of Motown in this, especially in the chorus. You can hear a Motown group sing in this chorus. It's got that great soul vibe to it. And yet it is this lethally exceptional song about ass. Come on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's what's right. We talked about during controversy, the fact that, you know, he just decided he was going to take on sort of the controversy about him head on. And it's like, people are saying, well, you can't listen to this guy. He's a little too edgy. He's writing too much about sex. So then what he decides to do is to come back with this song that is probably his, sexiest song yet and just throws enough of a veneer on it that you can listen to it once and not know what it's about if you're just sort of have it on in the background and you're not paying attention to all the lyrics that everybody's like okay well this is acceptable so we're going to listen to this and then it becomes a hit i mean it's like this brilliant sort of he was always so good and this is such a good example of just sort of playing with expectations and playing with you know, what was permitted and what was not. And in a way that it's kind of like, well, fine, listen to this. You're going to like it. You're going to sing along with it. You're going to love it. And maybe you'll do whatever it takes in your own head to either pretend it's not what it's about or to, uh, you know, put that out of your mind because you're going to go by it.
just going through this episode how many songs we have where the synthesizer is playing a starring role in some way or keyboards are playing a starring role in some way and i can't stress enough how wild that it wasn't that long ago where we were talking about songs where the rhythm was being pushed by a bass by a piano by a rhythm guitar here it is keyboards 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 almost in every song and here especially this sound there's a lot of different instruments in this song, but you primarily hear the keyboard synth and you hear a little bit of bass and you hear, you know, a drum machine. Basically you hear that LM one drum machine, that Lynn drum machine. So you have all that. Plus the opening chords sound a bit like Pachelbel's Canon. It's a little bit of a variation on that. So there's almost like a timeless nature to the chord structure. And you also have amazing guitar work by Des Dickerson. I mean, that guitar solo, and then you have that great keyboard hook. You have, like I said, the LM1, uh, Lynn LM1 drum machine, and then Prince's Bambi vocals, maybe his best vocals yet to this date. This to me is, I, I would argue this maybe is one of the 10 greatest pop songs ever written. I would put that on the list, the short list. This better get in the hall. We'll see what happens. <laughs> it's up to the voters to decide, but I would put this in lock, stock, and barrel first ballot. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the vocals. I mean, that's to me is the most interesting thing in going back and listening to Prince in this way. Is I think you're right. He didn't he didn't have the confidence, even in something like controversy, to quite do the delivery that he does here. Uh, it's like you know he sounds great and he still had a great voice, but it was like I I don't get that sort of uh, you know sort of pure confidence coming through that you do from this song. I also cannot get over every time you listen to this when it's on a playlist that opening sort of crash before it sort of backs into a little bit of quiet and then the synthesizer sort of builds up and comes into that first verse. I mean, there's sort of like sonically, this is definitely, it's like it almost literally punches you in the face with that opening sort of crash before it goes into uh, something a little bit different. And I mean, you're right. It's like, this is him finding this Minneapolis sound. And there have been a few bands that we've talked to about like, like this over the course of the podcast where they're, they're essentially inventing maybe not an entire genre, but they're inventing a sound and that's what Prince is. And it's been so interesting to hear through his three nominees where he's sort of every little step finding a new piece of that sound and coming up with this, you know, quote unquote Minneapolis sound that is, it's really, I mean, we call it the Minneapolis sound, but it's really Prince. Here's someone that we've been waiting to hear in 82. Yes, finally, we've reached Thriller. Michael Jackson, Billy Jean. She was more like a beauty queen from a movie scene. I said, don't mind, but what do you mean? I am the one who would dance on the floor and around. She's in 
Uh, I think this was one of the tapes that my sister got during our initial Columbia House uh, foray. And I loved Beat It. I loved the title track. And some of the other songs didn't quite, uh, you know, they didn't hit quite as well for me, I guess, at that age. Going back and listening to it now, this is the one that just sort of jumps off as the best. And then Human Nature is another one. Mm -hmm. It's like there's some of these songs that have a little bit more depth to them, I think. And this is definitely one of those. I'd also put PYT on that list. I think PYT is yeah, a, a killer funk workout. Also a little pop, too. We last checked in with Michael Jackson with Rock With You from Off The Wall. That was a couple episodes ago. Huge success. Jackson won Grammys and American Music Awards for the Off The Wall album. But ever determined, he wanted to top it with the album that would defeat all albums, where every song was a hit. At this time, that kind of thing really didn't happen intentionally or unintentionally. Jackson and producer Quincy Jones got an enormous $750,000 budget for the album. They worked on 30 songs in total. Nine made the cut for the album, which would, of course, be called Thriller. The nine songs spanned a variety of sounds and styles, from smooth R&B to adult-friendly pop, and from cinematic Halloween music to aggressive hard rock. Half the songs were recorded with a group of jazz and R&B musicians. The other half were recorded with an L.A. A-session band that we talked about not long ago, Toto. Billie Jean, which uses kind of a combination of both Toto and the R&B musicians, is about obsessed female fans who would claim Jackson fathered their children. It's one of the slinkier soul tracks on the album with obvious synth-pop influence, and we talked about in the last episode how Daryl Hall believes that it was influenced by his song, uh, I Can't Go For That No Can Do. This was the biggest hit on Thriller, I guess arguably the biggest hit, topping the charts in nine countries upon initial release. I mean, from the very beginning of Billie Jean, with that just combination of I guess it's a snare and a bass drum or whatever they're using to kind of open up this song and how large it sounds with that little bit of reverb. You are just hooked in this, this from the very first note tells you this is going to be a big song and it doesn't let up. I also can't believe there's only nine songs on thriller. I know I mean, they could right? have packed another three. If they would have packed another three tracks on there, how many more top 10 hits would they had? I mean, what the, I think there were seven, seven of the nine seven. hit the top 10, right? I mean, that's just ridiculous. Uh, I mean, you're right. This is one of those that it's like the, there are a couple of those songs that your ears just perk up when you hear that first note. And this is undoubtedly one of those. Uh, it's iconic. It is the now, I think, signature track of Thriller. As a kid, I probably would have said beat it. But this is the signature track. It's the one that sort of lives on more so than any of the other ones. And uh, uh, it's just, I mean, it really is amazing. It's like, it's hard to come up with superlatives to talk about thriller and talk about billy jean because it's been talked about to death but it still sounds great when you hear it well you know as jackson said this is a song about female fans who were claiming all these things about him and we all know that jackson's life took a lot of different turns and there's a lot of darkness in that story his songs always the best ones had that veneer where there was real darkness deep inside. And this very album, there's a number of songs that have a darkness to them. This is one of them. And the arrangement really does hit on that darkness in so many ways. The synths and the keyboards are so many of them on the song. You have a string arrangement by Jerry Hay that also kind of bleeds in. I love how those strings 
they kind of had that disco profile. You hear a little bit of disco in them, but they also kind of hinted that spookiness that I talked about with Rick James. I've talked about with uh, other songs like Planet Rock from this era. You know, you also had those little elements throughout the record where MJ's vocal ticks, you know, he's always adding this and that and this and that to the vocal to just spice it up and make you kind of think off guard, like what's going to happen next. And then even down to the drum track, you know, I was listening very close to the drum track recently and how it's not a standard drum track. There are little quarter notes that are played at different times that kind of throw you off a little bit. So there's all these little twists and turns throughout Billie Jean that if you listen closely are going to send you on a different road. And that is the genius, I think, of Quincy Jones. That's the genius of Michael Jackson. And this entire project is that these aren't straightforward tracks. There's a lot of different colors to these songs. There's a lot of different shades. And Jackson, on with all of that swirling around, his vocal delivery, the way that he kind of keeps that tone, the way that he adds inflections – He's able to rise above all that and dictate it and determine its pathway and create masterpieces with his work. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned his vocals, and that's like all of that is sort of epitomized within the vocals itself, where he hits every note perfectly. And then when the time is right, there's just like a little bit of darkness, a little bit of, you know, unease. And it's, it matches the subject matter perfectly, and he just delivers it perfectly. Quincy Jones pulls it out of him perfectly. And like produces it perfectly and gets it down. And, you know, we talked a little bit in 81 about videos, MTV, and how, you know, you're able to create an image. And there's no better example of that than the Billie Jean video. I mean, really, that all of the videos from Thriller taken together about Michael Jackson just sort of creating an image of himself as the world's most perfect, iconic pop star, the best dancer in the world, and this, you know, unbelievably cool, iconic figure. And for the next couple years that's really what he was and that was a creation as much of these videos as it was of the songs which in and of themselves would have been terrific but they did not exist in a world without those sort of michael jackson images and those visions of him dancing do i hope we get to talk about remember the time and eddie murphy playing an egyptian uh pharaoh yes absolutely all right folks that's it for 1982. Those are our top 12 songs from the year that was. We are going to put them in the ballot at hallofsongs.com. Those songs that we just nominated are Only You by Yazoo, Hallowed Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden, Rosanna by Toto, Planet Rock by Africa Bombada and the Soul Sonic Force, Amarillo by Morning by George Strait, Come On Eileen by Dexie's Midnight Runners. The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Love My Way by the Psychedelic Furs. 
Bam Bam by Sister Nancy. Mad World by Tears for Fears. Little Red Corvette by Prince. And Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. So those songs are going to end up on the ballot. Hallofsongs.com. Go there and vote for up to 10 songs. The songs that you think are the absolute best of the best and belong in the Hall of Songs. They will join many dozen other songs that are in the hall right now. So go vote at hallofsongs.com. Chris, what did we not put on the ballot this time? The songs that are just left off from our 82 list. Well, there were a couple songs from albums that we covered. Yeah. Uh, the rest of Thriller. Uh, maybe a few <laughs> all, all eight of them. <laughs> all eight of them. Uh, I'll give a shout out to a couple other ones that are a little bit different. More Than This by Roxy Music, mm. I think is another one that is very much in the same vein as Love My Way. Uh, sort of the sound of it, but it's just a great, great song that I love. Uh, uh, Atlantic City by Bruce Springsteen. I would say not one that has a huge amount of influence, but the whole Nebraska album by Springsteen is a great uh, standalone album that has some incredible songs. Atlantic City is probably the most endearing one. And then, uh, you know, it's probably the last chance for 38 special. Mm. Uh, I love caught up in you. It is probably my favorite 38 (laughs) special song, but uh, you know, nobody did the album covers of, scantily clad woman walking away from some piece of heavy machinery quite like 38 special <laughs> and this is probably like their their piece to resist on so i will go with caught up in you by 38 special 38 special is a really fun like crazy hybrid of country rock and power pop and you know they're they're, they're a lot of fun so i will mention while well, there's other songs from 1999 right the title track there's delirious great album i will also mention Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye from his Midnight Love album, which I listened to Midnight Love again not too long ago, all the way through. That album really holds up in a way that I had not imagined. And it holds up in a way that you'll hear a lot of almost modern R&B in that album. It's really tremendous. So that's one that you know definitely holds up till today. Do You Really Want to Hurt Me by Culture Club. That was very close to our shortlist there. Uh, I mean, Culture Club is a very underrated group, especially in America, even though they were really big for like a, a, a quick moment there. Um, and also we had this very, very close. It was actually on the list until I made the play for Only You. Do you believe in love? By Huey Lewis in the news. There's my falsetto. I'm sorry, everybody. That's just a great pop song. Boy, I mean, talk about happy, makes you feel good. The harmonies, maybe we'll get that in the the Veterans Committee, which is coming up. Veterans Committee episode comes up on May 15th, so it's possible. Do You Believe in Love is part of that episode, but that was the other one that I wanted to mention. Yeah, so that is our that is where we go next, I guess. Our Veterans Committee is our next episode. Is that right? That is, yeah. Tune in. May 15th, and then we will have our recap show from our most recent round of voting. That'll come out on May 20th, and then it'll be 1983, or as I like to call it, Every Breath You Hall of Songs. I just made that up on the spot. What a joke. Clever, Tim. Clever. That'll be it on May 22nd. It just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? Yeah. May 22nd. All right. With that, uh, Chris, who do we thank for all the stuff that they do for us? 
Uh, thank you to Stock Music Media for our theme song. We're now in the third year of our 80s version of that song, getting lots of compliments. And thank you to Aaron Delashma. Uh, you can find his stuff at Piper Down Productions. Uh, he does our logo work, and he designs our cool guitar pick plaques that all of our inductees get. Thank you, guys. I have to mention two more songs that we didn't put on the list just because I saw them, and I was like, ooh, I got to put, I got to say them. I Keep Forgetting by Michael McDonald. Come on. Come on. Come on. And one of my favorite bands, they don't get recognition, but you have to listen to them at some point, Split Ends. I think I mentioned them a little bit in our 79 episode or something like that. Six Months on a Leaky Boat. Fantastic song. Just a fantastic song. Just wanted to mention them. Also, XTC senses working. Maybe we'll get XTC on the podcast. We'll see. But yeah, I was also uh, I was going to throw out uh, Donald Fagan with IGY. You oh throw, yeah, I, I keep forgetting. There's some Yada Jason stuff on there. The Nightfly uh, album, yeah, yeah. Uh, I love the Nightfly. That's a great, great album. So and, I mean, and, so many good things. And the Nightfly is, you know, arguably the most immaculately engineered digital album of all time. It's the one that a lot of people use as sort of the way to test their levels and things like that. I mean, it is just that perfect. But that's Steely Dan for you, right? Isn't it? All right, that's it. We're done. We're done talking. We'll be back next time with a Veterans Committee episode on May 15th. Until then, this is Hall of Songs. I'm Tim. I am Chris. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong.